Hi there, I'm Jennifer Stewart. And I'm Katherine Clark, and we're so glad that you're joining us today for The Honest Talk. We're excited to be bringing you conversations with some of North America's most inspiring women, and we are thrilled to be partnering with RBC as we do so. This podcast is about leaving behind the talking points and diving into the real, authentic, and unique personal stories of our guests. Stories which we hope might influence or inspire your own journeys. So let's get right to it. The Honorable Jean Augustine is a trailblazer, perhaps best known to Canadians as the first African-Canadian woman to be elected to the House of Commons, serving as Secretary of State for Multiculturalism and the Status of Women, but her impact goes far beyond her political career. From the moment she arrived in Canada as an immigrant from Grenada, Dr. Augustine has worked to improve her community as a teacher, a mother, a board member, a social justice and equality activist, and now is the president of the Jean Augustine Center for Young Women's Empowerment. And she is our guest today on The Honest Talk. Welcome, Dr. Augustine. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. You've had such an extraordinary life and an extraordinary career, Dr. Augustine. And it started in Grenada. You were raised uh, by a grandmother. You lost your father early. Can you talk to us about how your childhood influenced your later path in life? I think it is important to recognize and to realize that what happens in those early years are so important for the development of the individual and uh, this, the courage and the, the resilience and everything that's built into those early years that helps one to get to the full potential, as it were. I grew up in a small place, Happy Hills in George's Grenada, I was surrounded by um, family, lots of children, lots of young people, lots of um, matriarchs, I call them. I re- there were lots of men around, but I remember the women because they were the matriarchs of the family. I grew up with um, the notion, the African notion, it takes a village to raise a child. And uh, very early, I learned all of the things that we hear, um, you know, it, uh, the um, everything I, I know I learned in kindergarten, everything I um, you know play fair, uh, share with others, um, you know all of those things I learned very early, and I took that with me, and the, the advice I got, and the um, the support, and uh, the the building of my self esteem as a girl, because there was firm belief by my grandmother that there was nothing that girls couldn't do. She herself was not educated in terms of what we know as uh, academia with with degrees or with um, high school graduation, but she recognized the importance of education. And so I was given every opportunity as a girl to go to school, to develop, and uh, to to have um, and to remember the words that she said way before Obama said it. She said, yes, you can. As a girl, yes, you can. There is nothing you cannot do. But remember that education has to be the starting point and the basis for wherever you're going to go. Yes, you can is such a powerful motto. Dr. Augustine, why did you decide to immigrate to Canada? And what do you remember most about those early days in this country? Uh, It's important um, to uh, look back on the situation of the Caribbean islands at the time. 
there was very little in terms of post-secondary education. The University of the West Indies in 1955, when I left high school, the University of the West Indies was just cranking up, as it were, and uh, trying to expand some programs throughout the the rest of the islands. But if you wanted, if you wanted anything post-secondary, you had to leave the island. And so the families were putting together envelopes to assist their sons to go away, as it used to be said, go away to university in, uh, in the UK, in the US, etc. And uh, the girls uh, remained behind. There were four or five avenues open to us. We could be teachers, we could be uh, nurses, we could work in a department store, we could, uh, we could get married, stay home, have children. And that was really the expectation around those early years. But I knew and my grandmother knew that I, that I had to have post-secondary education. And so how do you get post-secondary education? You have to go away. I was writing to schools here in Canada and in the U.S., And of course, I was getting admission because I had Oxford and Cambridge Overseas School Certificate, which was a graduating thing for uh, high school uh, in Grenada at the time. But I could not meet the criteria, and that is having enough funds to pay for your tuition, your living and accommodation, uh, your airfare, etc., And so I was there biding my time. And then this program came up, uh, an agreement with um, the Caribbean, some of the Caribbean islands and the Canada. Canada was looking for, at the time, looking for um, household help for women who were now coming back into the workplace, the late 1950s into the uh, 60s. And therefore they needed household help. The Caribbean had all these young people who had skills and and, uh, who had abilities. And so a match was put together called the Canada-Caribbean Domestic Scheme. And so I signed up for that scheme, came to Canada, worked for one year in the home of a Canadian family with the criteria that I would work for one year as a domestic in the home of a Canadian family, get landed immigrant status, and could remain in Canada. And that was Canada. Uh, Canada's contribution to the Caribbean at the time to assist with the unemployment of young people. The family that you lived with recognized very early on that you had very real skills, that you you should indeed be continuing your education. And, and uh, that was clearly something you were interested in as well. And you did choose teaching. You, you um, became a teacher. You became, in fact, one of the first Black principals in your school board. Can you talk to us about that journey and and how it influenced your later community activism? Well, my community activism started from the time, from the day I landed in Canada, um, just trying to find some of the necessities, as it were, uh, as a Black woman, uh, trying to find the right face powder, trying to find the right color of uh, nylons, uh, trying to find where there was a hairdresser, et cetera, et cetera. Because in in those days, it's not as it is today. Um, At the same time, there was just so much um, that that was missing uh, in in terms of uh, what was later called a just society. 
We had no charter of rights and freedom, you know, no, nothing that says you can discriminate on the basis of whatever. Remember, that didn't come till we amended our constitution in 1982. We're talking about 1960, 61. Um, we had no um, rules around um housing so that you know i was told uh yeah it's for rent but not for you we had no landlord and tenant act i had no way to appeal because we did not at the time have uh a human rights commission as we know it uh, today where you can uh you can ask for some um intervention we had no police community relations we had no school board talking to parents or bringing parents into the building. Actually, the, the gates of the school, um, the school grounds were, were locked after school hours and classrooms and, and the school itself. We had no community. Um, uh, the school was not seen as a community resource at the time. So things were so different. Um, there were no role models and mentors around that you can look in the system and see people who look like me, people who um, whose experiences were very much like mine in any high place or in any place that um, you can say I want to get there uh, myself. And so I started with a whole lot of people who were before me, had been part of the advocacy, had been part of the activism. And so I became an activist of sorts. <laughs> I'm pretty amazed by your strength and energy because not only were you an activist, you were a single mother to daughters. So how can we collectively help raise strong girls? We have to be models to girls. We have to give those messages that I got because it, from day one, you know, as you said earlier, my father died when I was nine months old, didn't know my father. Um, my grandmother stepped in to assist and, uh, and she was a strong black woman. She was uh, an un, what you would call an uneducated woman. Uh, she was at the same time, she was educated, um, in the school of hard knocks. She had, um, she had intelligence. Um, she had what we would call street smarts. And she recognized the importance of women in families and the role of women in the world. And uh, despite the fact that we were in Happy Hill, we were in what always used to be referred to as the global village, that uh, things that affect other people in other parts of the world affected us. And so I, I grew up with this kind of international scope, thinking about other people in other parts of the world, knowing myself as African descent. Um, and uh, knowing also that it's important to make, you know, to make my contribution or to contribute, to be of service and uh, to do what one can to move the agenda forward. Because um, it is important that young girls know all of this. I have a center for young women's empowerment. And at that center, this is what we do. We empower young women. We give them the soft skills. We give them the... Um, the opportunity to to be resilient, the opportunity to uh, to strengthen uh, and to be courageous and to speak up and to speak out about about issues. And at the same time, uh, we do things like um, the STEM programs, technology programs, um, at the 
cooking and and sewing and developing uh, entrepreneurial kind of uh, knowledge and intelligence, talking about banking systems and talking about uh, issues that would enable young women to be affirmed and to develop their potential, showing them that the opportunities that are there, showing them that that there is nothing that's non-traditional, that they can get into whatever field of endeavor and giving them the opportunity and the affirmation to know that they can take any track as a young girl. And so I recognize that very early. And this is what over the years, whether I was in the school system as a teacher in the classroom, or whether I was a vice principal or principal um, in the system, I was always very much uh, interested in seeing that young girls were mentored, young girls were given opportunities, young girls were given um, the resources that's, uh, that's needed so that they could be empowered. You were a figurehead for so many women because you represented a first, you represent a lot of firsts, but um, a, an enormous moment was when you were elected to the House of Commons. And I'm curious to know whether being the first Black woman in the House of Commons was an empowering experience or whether it was a lonely experience or was it both? Was it more than that? Can you talk to us a little bit about it? Well, it was more, it was more than that. It was, a, oh my God. It was an oh my gosh place. It was an awesome experience. At the same time, I think we have to keep in mind that by the time in 1993 that I um, I allowed myself to be talked into running, because most women in those days um, had to be talked into running. Uh, when I had my first um, my first daughter. Um, there was one woman in the Parliament of Canada. Uh, we just came through an election. We now have, I think, 102 uh, women in the House of Commons. So we've come a long way. When I got there, I was the first Black woman. My goodness, even running, I was the Black woman running. And I, I had come from a whole wealth of experience, having headed several large schools having been the chair of Metro Toronto Housing Authority with um, lots of responsibility. And um, at the same time, uh, the opportunity, I've had the opportunity to sit on different boards, uh, high profile boards, the board of trustees of governors for York University, Hospital for Sick Children, um, Donwood Institute, uh, you know, Metro Toronto Housing as chair of um, of that body. So I went to the Parliament of Canada with some background, with some skills, uh, with some abilities that I had, um, and expertise that I had honed. So I got there wanting to do some things, not just to be in the House of Commons, but with uh, what you would say, the fire in the belly to, to make some changes, because I'd seen First hand, the lives of people caught in socioeconomic difficult situations and know that it was decisions made at political levels in city halls or in, uh, in provincial parliaments or in the House of Commons. And so I had the fire in my belly to get there and do some things. So I didn't wait 
for to be told or uh, uh, wait to be whatever. I started organizing my colleagues very early on to discuss things like microcredit, to, to look at population and development, the education of the girl child, uh, the issue of, um, of young people caught in, uh, in situation of um, violence is uh, part of, of their lives, addictions, all of those things. We used to, I used to call breakfast meetings uh, regularly and find the colleagues who had an interest and we would deal with those issues. And uh, hopefully some of them work their way into caucuses and work their way into legislation. And so for me, it was an opportunity to do some things. It was an opportunity to be there. It was an opportunity to find people that were of like minds. And it was an opportunity to, um, to role model. To, I was always very conscious as a parliamentarian that, that the entire Black community in Canada saw me there as uh, representing them. I had learned very early not uh, to take slights or to, to do whatever. If someone was racist or they had racist notions or they were doing whatever, it was their problem, not mine. And mm-hmm. so I went on the positive and I ignored those people uh, who, for whatever reason, had problems that they, they needed to grapple with. Dr. Augustine, we have seen a tremendous amount of social change in the past two to three years with the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. What gives you hope right now? Uh, what gives me hope? Huh. It's the fact that we see so many young people who have caught the baton from those of us who have, um, who have struggled and who are making progress. I feel so great when I'm asked to speak and there's a whole room full of, um, for example, just, uh, just teachers, that you see all these black faces, all these African Canadians all across the country in the last election, putting themselves forward and running in all of the political parties. You go through the universities now. When I went to university, you can count the number of us in the classes that I took. Now, doesn't you know? There, there are just umpteen young people who are um, who are in those uh, those spaces, and so that gives me hope. The discussion that's taking place right now about the past wrongs in Canadian society and what we all need to do. And I think that uh, that the pandemic gave us that opportunity, the year or two, to reflect. We saw who the essential workers are. We saw what happened to women and women's position. We saw the issue of the social justice questions that reverberated all around the world because of George Floyd's uh, killing. The Me Too movement brought forth the uh, the issue about you know women no longer accepting uh, the nonsense uh, in the workplace. So there, there was just so much. Black Lives Matter and the young people in that movement, all of those things give me hope. Hope that we are, when we get on the other side of all of these conversations around diversity and inclusion, that 
we will come out a more diverse, a more inclusive, a fairer, and a better society. Dr. Augustine, I don't think the word trailblazer is a large enough word to describe your impact on our country. Uh, We are so grateful you were able to join us today in the Honest Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. And thank you to our wonderful listeners across Canada and around the world for joining us. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes, you can subscribe to The Honest Talk wherever you get your podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website, thehonesttalk.ca. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsor, RBC, which offers digital-first solutions, advice, and services that go beyond banking to help you realize your true potential. And that's what this podcast is all about. You can find more info at rbc.com slash business. But for now, stay healthy and stay safe. And we truly look forward to having you back soon for more of The Honest Talk.